I found that where a lot of people get stuck here and the reason it's hard for them is they're still listening to mentors who help them get to 10 million, but those people themselves aren't past 10 million. And so it's, it's really hard to get advice from somebody who's not been where you're at. How do you create an unshakable business? I crossed $100 million in net worth by the age of 28. Now I'm growing acquisition.com into a billion dollar portfolio. In this podcast, I share the lessons I've learned in scaling big businesses and helping our portfolio companies do the same. Buckle up and let's build. I've built and sold three companies, one of which is worth over $100 million, and I am building my fourth right now, and my goal is to get it to a billion. This has not been an easy journey, to say the least, and so today is really for my 23-year-old self, and this is for you too, if that's what you're going through. And if selling a business is something that is appealing to you, at the end, I'm going to include some of my tips, the things that I learned along the way to sell my businesses. So I made this framework that basically outlines the four phases to go from zero to 100 million. There's phase one, which is zero to a million. That's the phase most of you are in. That phase is called market fit, or many people know it as product market fit. In this phase, you need to nail one product that has one avatar that you sell through one channel, and you just sell that thing over and over and over again until you have consistency of numbers. Can you, week over week and month over month, sell the same amount of units, or even better, increase the amount of units month over month? This phase sounds simple. It's like, all right, one product, one channel, selling something to one person, a million. I get it. That's simple, right? It's not simple because you have no idea what the hell you're doing. You're probably what we would call a entrepreneur. You want to be an entrepreneur, but you haven't taken that step. Before I started my business, I was constantly consuming things. I was consuming podcasts. I was reading books. I was going to free events. I was trying to figure out if I was working the right job, if I was getting in with the right people. I was trying to network. I always felt like I just wasn't ready. It just felt like there's like one piece of information that if I acquire that information, then I'll be ready to do the thing. And it's so funny looking back at it now because I realize like there is no silver bullet of information. Like there's never going to be a time where you feel like now I've acquired all the information and I'm ready. Because if you were to feel that way, then you've already done the thing. One thing that I would tell myself if I were going back is like, You're never going to feel ready. You need to become a person who can act despite not feeling ready. And that is why it's so hard. You don't know who to listen to. You don't know what instructions are right and what are wrong. You're getting different opinions from all different people. And so it's very hard for people to even get through this stage and get to a million dollar per year business because there's just so much noise and you don't have the skill at which to figure out what noise to filter and what to listen to. And so this stage feels like eating I call it like the swap of because it just feels so hard. It's either one of these three things. You don't have something people want, you have something people want, and you're selling it to the wrong people, or the way in which you convey what you have to people is in a way that they do not understand. And in the beginning, those are usually the three things you have to figure out. Good example of this is that when I started my first business, Gym Launch, there wasn't some crazy master plan behind it. We weren't like doing crazy product market research, running analysis, like bringing in Bain or McKinsey, like It was just me and Alex calling people. And then we thought to ourselves, as people who had been in their shoes prior, what would have been something that would have really helped us when we were in their shoes? And that's why I think that starting a business in an area that you already know is the best way to go because often the reason for that is that you get the customer. You understand what they want. You understand their needs. You understand what they like to buy, what they don't like to buy. I think that sometimes people make it more complex than it needs to be. And so I think that rather than asking yourself, what market do I start with? Ask yourself, what customer do I know best? Okay, Layla, well, where's this channel that I'm selling this to these people? That's an easy question to answer. 
where do they already live? Where do they hang out? When we start gym launch, gym owners aren't on LinkedIn. You know who is on LinkedIn? Software engineers are on LinkedIn. Gym owners were on Facebook. So that is where we picked our first channel. So when you're in this phase, for example, zero to one million, I would say that the first skill I would start with is probably sales. Why would I start with sales as the first one? Because I believe that if you can understand how to sell to a person over the phone or over Zoom, then you also understand how to market to that person. Because you know what marketing is? Taking the things that we say during a sales call and positioning them in a way that attracts somebody's attention. Then the next thing that inherently you're thinking is like, okay, well, how do I acquire the skill to market? How do I acquire the skill to sell? Well, I think one important thing to look at is what's called the hierarchy of competence. Okay, so this is a pyramid and it's basically going through the phases of skill development. So the first level of skill development is unconscious incompetence. That means that you suck and you don't know you suck. It's just like somebody who, if they've never done something before, they have no point of reference. Therefore, they don't know how bad they are or how good they are. The second level is called conscious incompetence which is you still suck at the thing, but you're aware that you suck at the thing because you now have points of reference. What does that mean? You've probably read up enough on the skill that now you understand what good looks like and you know that you're not it. The third level is conscious competence. That means that you are aware of what good looks like and you also are what good looks like. And then the last level is unconscious competence, which is when you are so good at the thing that you don't have to be aware of if you're good at the thing or not. It's not even a thought because it is so now second nature, it is so inherent to you. Say it's speaking on a stage, for example. You get up on the stage and you crush it. You didn't practice, you did nothing. You've done it so many times that it is a behavior that's so ingrained, you don't even have to think about it. That is how you acquire a skill. Now, the thing is, you can't skip to the top. You have to go through all the levels. And so any skill that you start at, you're gonna suck and then you're gonna be like kind of maybe good and then like actually good. And then eventually one day, you don't even know how good you are and you take for granted how good you are because you haven't even thought about it in so long. But the thing is that most people never get past the point where they suck. So a great example of this when you're first starting off is sales. It's such a linear process to watch people go through this. And it's more of like a J-curve when you think of the hierarchy of competence. It's like it's slow at first and the feeling and the phase where you suck is prolonged. And then when you start to increase, then you really start to exponentially increase. I had a neighbor and he came over to my house and he took a sales call and we heard him on the sales call and we said, oh my gosh, that was awful. And he was like, was it? Because he was in unconscious incompetence. He was so bad and he didn't know how bad he sucked. So the reason it's so interesting in sales is because that's usually where people start, right? They don't know that they suck. Then you start training. You start learning. You write a book on sales. Then you start to be aware of what good sales actually look like. So then you know you suck. And so then you continue to work on it and use the point of reference from, say, the book or the training you took or the course you took. And you start to sound more and more like that. Then, say, you start to actually take sales call with the customers that you're trying to sell. At first, you make some sales, you don't make some sales. You feel good some days, you feel bad some days. Like you're really not sure what to expect. It's a little unpredictable. And a lot of people quit there because they just don't like the unpredictability or the uncertainty. But the thing is that if you wade through the times of uncertainty, you get to conscious competence, which is where you're really good and you're able to produce consistent results. And if you're able to continue doing that, you get to unconscious competence, which is where you're producing results that continue to increase month over month without much effort at all. The reason that it's so hard to start a business is you're usually going through this hierarchy with multiple skills. You're not just doing that with sales. You're also eating shit with marketing. And you're also eating shit with leading people. And you're also eating shit with organizing your company and delivering. And so it's very painful because you're stuck in that conscious incompetence in like five different skills. The reason that I'm a fan of focusing on a few at once is because it's easier to increase one thing at a time. 
Now, I would say the second and very close second, depending on the business, you could flip these. But in most cases, I would suggest this is marketing. I see marketing as the expectations that we're setting of what our company does and what that customer is to expect for the entire journey with us, whether that's a one-time transaction or whether it's a transformation over six or 12 months. Marketing is setting expectations. How do I show people that I have what they want in a way that then creates a good customer experience? Aside from sales and marketing, the third skill that you're really learning during this period is offer development. What is offer development? It's understanding how you package the product for the people you're selling it to. Packaging is typically pricing combined with features. For example, so at Gym Launch, we sold Gym Launch to Gym Owner. When we're thinking of packaging, there's different ways that you can look at this when we're thinking of offer development. One is, is our offer conducive for the market we're selling to? What I mean by that is within your avatar, there are subsets of your avatar. If your offer is for weight loss, is it geared towards people over 50, below 50? Are they 20 to 50? What is it? That is going to dictate what your offer might look like because the more specific you can get with who you're selling to, the better offer you can craft. An offer is the price point that you're selling at and the features that you're outlining. So it's really understanding the value of something and how you portray the value in a sales pitch is usually stemming from the offer that you develop. With that offer, if you really think about it, right, it's like, okay, if you have marketing and you have sales, which are elements of an offer or like stems of it, the rest that you need to decide are the packaging and pricing, which is what things am I going to give for what price? So gym launch, we were like, okay, for $16,000, they get an accelerated program that is 16 weeks long. You have a coach for support. You have a technical thing. You get these many ads. You get these many calls. You get these things. Now, if you want more than that, then you go one level up, right? And the thing is about the level up is it also was for a slightly different avatar. This level up had support with building a team, building training, et cetera. And so what we understood is that because when we were first starting the business, we wanted to focus on one product, one avatar, one channel, we only did one level, which meant that our pricing and our features that we sold were attuned to the newer gym owner starting out the person who just needed to make money. They weren't trying to build a team. They were trying to make money. They're trying to make extra revenue. They're trying to get more people in their gym. That is who we cater to. And so when you think about the third skill, it's understanding who do you cater to and at what point in their journey as a gym owner, as a dance teacher, as a custodian, as a you know consumer of supplements, like at what point in their journey are you catering to them? And that is going to dictate how much purchasing power they have and what features they want from your product. Now, those are hard skills, right? Those are skills that anybody can learn. But what is the one thing that's a soft skill that somebody would need to acquire in order to even have the capacity to achieve all those things? And I would say it's work capacity. You know, when I was first starting out, I think that I was primed for business because of working in fitness. So I would get up at 4 a.m. I would open the gym at 4.30 a.m. I would be there until 8 or 8.30 p.m. to close out, finish all my last clients. I had a break in the middle of the day for a couple hours. But during that break, I was messaging other clients, trying to make sales, working the floor. And so I was working for really long hours. Now, a lot of people don't have that experience before they start a business. A lot of people actually start a business because they want to work less. But the irony of that is that you often have to be able to work more in order to one day work less. And so in the beginning, because there's so many skills that you have to try and acquire, your capacity has to be very large. And the only way to acquire work capacity is to not back down when it gets hard. Like a lot of people want some fancy formula for this, but it's just like lifting weights. If you wanna get stronger, you lift more. You'll be sore the next day, 
but you have to keep lifting more despite feeling sore. You have to keep working harder despite feeling frustrated, tired, worn out, exhausted. You will get there. But using those things as a reason not to pursue your dreams, not to pursue this business, they're not good reasons. In fact, I call that special snowflake syndrome, which is we think I'm more tired. I'm more frustrated. This is harder for me. It's not. It's hard for everybody. And thinking about the people that's not hard for doesn't help you. And I think that was a really pivotal thing for me to learn is that I wasn't special. You know, I need to learn these skills just like anybody else. It's hard for everybody because learning is hard in the beginning. And I think a lot of times, if you want to build your work capacity, remind yourself this is a season of hard. You know, starting a business is hard. And I remember telling myself, you know, there's no better time than now. I'm not going to get any younger. There's no time in my life where I'm going to have less risk taking this. This will be a season of hard. It's not going to be fun. If you go into building a business thinking like, this should be easy. I should be making a million dollars in six months. These expectations, which, what are they founded on? Like some dude on the internet who was posting it, trying to sell you his course. You know what I mean? Of course it took him six months because he's selling you a course. He's going to tell you whatever he needs to tell you. You have to set the expectations low, prepare for a season of hard, and focus on increasing your work capacity just like you build a muscle. Now, I also think during this stage, people get distracted by hearing about things that are important for business, but they're not important right now for business. So if you're still trying to find product market fit, then certain things don't matter. The appeal of your website does not really matter. Now, will it matter soon? Yes, but should it matter right now? Should that be something you put resources towards? Probably not. You know, having the perfect CRM in place and the perfect systems, does that matter? It's good to be organized, but the likelihood that you're gonna have to change it all in a year anyways, fairly high. Google spreadsheets is fine. You know, becoming an insane leader that has very great management skills. Important? Yes. Right now, not the most important. Why? You probably only have a couple people. And a lot of people can manage two to three people without much skill at all. And so all of those things, like professionalizing the business, becoming a great manager, having a great brand presence, they're all important, but they're not the most important thing right now. Right now, what I've got to focus on is one channel, one product, one avatar, and selling it consistently over and over again until I'm so good that I have to start doing these other things because the demand is so high. The reason I think zero to a million is the hardest is because it's the area in which you incur the most cost of change. You just made a big life change to start a business. You're not only incurring the cost of starting a business, you're incurring the cost of whatever change you made in your entire life. You might have changed or gotten rid of relationships. You might have quit a job and lost all your friends. And then the thing is, is that as you're able to deal with that stuff and you get used to the new environment, you get used to not talking to the people you used to talk to, you get used to not having a job, you clock in and get a paycheck, up, then things start to go faster. You have more clear headspace, you have more attention back, you're able to focus more because your environment has stabilized. And once your environment has stabilized, it makes everything go much faster in the business. Now in the second phase, which is really one to 10 million. Like I talked about, it's a lot focused on deliverable. And the reason for that is often, like I said, you have one product, the one avatar via one channel. You might have a product that you're selling, a transaction is made, but what are you getting from that customer after? And so the goal from the one to 10 million is how do we increase lifetime value? How do we get recurring revenue in place? In the zero to one million, what becomes a problem thereafter is we don't make enough money per customer. And so we need to figure out what more does that customer want that I can sell them. That's really what we want to figure out from one to 10 million. Now, what goes with that is you can't really provide a product to customers beyond what you're doing today without building somewhat of a team. The skill that goes along with that is learning how to hire. Now, why do I say learning how to hire and not how to train? Because I believe that in small businesses, it makes more sense to get good at picking people than it does training people. The reason for that is it is much harder 
to train people when you only typically in a small business have to hire one of every role. So should you as the leader take the time to get proficient at one of everything, at IT, at finance, at sales, at marketing? Probably not. That would probably take all of your time and you might actually drop the ball on the things that you are doing that are paramount to the business. Figuring out how to extend LTV of the customer paired with figuring out how to hire the right people and identify what roles are needed are the two skills that are gonna take you from one to 10 million. The reason that increasing LTV is often a better alternative to just selling more people is because it actually costs you less in the long run. To acquire a customer is typically more costly for a business than it is to extend the lifetime value of that customer. So an example would be a fitness app. They get customers on. Those customers pay, say, like $100 a year. And what happens is that in the beginning, cost of acquisition is low because you're new to the market. You've got something working really well. You're able to acquire customers, say it's like a one to two ratio. Over time, what typically happens is the cost of advertising only continues to get more. Why? Because more people get on the platforms. So you're competing against more people and more people saturate your market. And so then what you're doing is that your margin per customer continues to shrink over time. So say you're selling that $99 app and say you were profiting $45, say three years ago, and now you're profiting $10. Not looking very good. Not easy to run a business on those margins. And so rather than saying, let's sell more people, I would say, okay, let's extend the lifetime value of the customer. After they purchase your app, what do they go purchase after? Do they go buy supplements? Do they go buy clothing? Do they go buy resistant bands? What are they buying as they continue to use your app that you're not selling them? That's where you have room to look at the LTV of a customer. The cost of acquiring them can continue to rise. And as long as you can continue to sell them more things on the back end without having to acquire a new one, you can increase the margins of your business and compete against everybody else while they're trying to squirm for like, how do I reduce my cost of acquisition? You're like, I don't care because I'm making more money on the back end. So then you can beat your competition. And again, this is why knowing your customer is so important. You know, with Gym Launch, for example, we knew what people wanted after they were in our 16-week program. We understood because we'd been there. When you really understand the customer, you understand what they need after your product. And so it makes it much easier to figure out how to extend that LTV because you've been a customer before, you've been in their shoes, or you know them so intimately that understanding all the other things that they're going to buy is really easy for you. Now, when it comes to those early hires, how to identify who you need to hire at this stage comes down to this quadrant I think of. There's things that you hate and suck at. There's also things you hate, but you're good at. There's things that you're good at, and there's things that you like and you're good at. The first thing you want to offload is the things that you suck at and you hate. What are the things that you suck at and hate that are most important to the business growing? We usually want to offload the things that we hate but are good at, right? Like sales or marketing, because we might have gotten sick of it by now, but we don't want to offload those things. Business can't afford to have the close rate drop from 85% to 50%. We got to extend lifetime value first. Whatever you're good at in the business, like extraordinarily good at, keep doing and start outsourcing the other things first. So something I was doing that I sucked at and I didn't like was tech support. So in the beginning, we brought in all these customers and in order for them to get their marketing up, to build out funnels, to get you know Facebook ads launched, Instagram ads launched, they need a lot of technical help. And I am not good at that because I've never practiced and I didn't enjoy it. You know, and I probably didn't enjoy it because I suck at it because like we know when we suck at things, we don't really like them. Needless to say, that was one of the first things that we hired for was people who were very technically competent. Now, the second thing that I hired for was somebody that could take the things off my plate that I might have been good at, but 
they weren't worth my time, meaning it was low dollar per hour work, which is another filter you can run this through, which is like you always want to outsource first the things that are the lowest dollar per hour because those things can then make rooms so that you can focus on the higher dollar per hour work. And so then I brought on an executive assistant. Now, a lot of people ask me, they say, Layla, I've heard higher, slow, fire, fast. I'm not really the biggest fan of that because I think it's taken out of context. You know, I think that at this point, like, do you even know to hire well? Are you even that skilled at hiring? Do you even know what fast or slow is, right? Probably not. Not if this is your first business. And so I think that what I would rather focus on is hire well, fire well. Learn how to hire people well. Learn how to set great expectations for them. Provide them with job descriptions. Give them a clear idea of the deficits of the company and the problems they are going to solve if they come and join you. And on the other side, when I say fire well, it means first, make sure that you've done your part in terms of setting the right expectations, onboarding the person properly, training them properly, and making them aware of the things that they need to work on. Because if you've never communicated those things to somebody, then why are we firing them rather than just having a conversation? In terms of how much to pay yourself, I think it comes down to understanding why did you start the business? Did you start the business to make money for yourself? Or did you start the business to have an impact on an industry, on a specific kind of people? In the beginning when we had gym launch, we were broke and had debt. And so we wanted to make a ton of money from the business. You know, we took out as much cash as possible from the business. In terms of acquisition.com, you know, now we have enough money. We don't really care how much money we're taking on the business. In fact, we don't intend to make money on this business for years. We're reinvesting most of the capital. It just depends on where you're at in your life and what the objective is. I don't f with the gray. So a lot of people will play in the gray. They'll say, hey, I'll do this little tax strategy. Like, hey, you know, there's a chance one day, you know, I don't do that. If there's ever a chance of anything, I'm just completely risk averse to that. I don't want any gray. I think that that's a personal question you have to ask yourself. But I will say that if you ever want to sell the business, investors will devalue the business for taking too much risk from a tax standpoint. So if you're watching this and you feel like some of these things are helpful for you, let me know in the comments which ones are the most helpful and let me know which ones you're still unclear on. Now, the next phase is 10 to 50 million. The problem we're solving is inconsistency. And often what it takes is just experience and seeing over time that one, inconsistency at times is normal to have. But once you can get consistency in place through systems, then you feel much better about the business because you know that you have systems in place to mitigate the inconsistency when it does arrive. And so what are those things? It's professionalization of management, professionalization of systems, and implementing data as a practice or as a core piece of the culture. You can work up to 10 million and not have a ton of data. I see businesses do it all the time. Like they're able to get there just because like they really understand the customer. They really know what they need. And they're able to get to 10, 12 million without having a dashboard, KPIs, measurements in place. But to stay there and to continue to grow gets exponentially harder, especially as you grow the organization and you're relying on everyone's word of mouth, which is harder to get as you have more people and not data. Systemizing data, integrating that in, creating a dashboard, and then professionalizing the business is what you want to focus on. Now, how do you professionalize a business? You professionalize management. When you get from one to 10 million, usually you can do so with people that are promoted from within, with honestly, even just like two to three leaders who maybe are the founders, you don't need too much in place. But in order to get past 10 million, and honestly, even to set yourself up well and not want to rip your hair out when you're at 10 million, getting functional leaders in place who have been there, done that is really important. And the reason I like bringing people in who have been there, done that is because you don't need to bring the whole organization in from the outside. 
but to bring certain people and put them in leadership seats so they can mentor others beneath them, that's really powerful because otherwise it's going to fall on you. You're going to be the only mentor. There's going to be everyone looking to you for answers. And you're like, hey, I haven't done this before either. And so in order to actually get from 10 to 50 million, you need some people who have been there, done that. You need enough of them that they can help educate the rest of the people on the path forward. Now, it's not easy to find these people. I'm not going to pretend like it is. It's the same as finding customers. How do you find people who are experienced when you are not? That is really what the question is. Why should they work for you when you have less experience than them? So really what you need to do is develop your employee value proposition, which is why should employees want to work for you and not somebody else? Just like your offer that you have to the marketplace, which is why should somebody buy your product and not somebody else's? It's the same thing, but done internally. Is it higher pay? Is it culture? Is it flexible remote work? What is it that you're going to provide here? And then a better way to even engineer it is what are the type of people that you want and what do they want? Do they want remote work? Do they want higher pay? Or do they want learning opportunities? Just like you find out what do my customers want, you have to figure out what do my employees want? And then that is what you're going to provide. And that's how you're going to attract them. How you do that mechanistically, if you can get the offer right, the next thing that you need to do is get the platform right, which is where do these people live? Well, we know that LinkedIn, the average person on LinkedIn is making more than $80,000 a year. So if your job that you're posting for is making $40,000 a year, are we going to do it on LinkedIn or Indeed? We're probably going to do it on Indeed. Versus if we're looking for people making over $100,000 a year, we're probably going to post it on LinkedIn. So for example, in Gym Launch, we had a very large coaching department. And that's probably a department that a lot of people struggle to scale. In fact, I would say it's one of the hardest. And the reason for that is to find a gym owner who's proficient enough, who has the track record that other gym owners will listen to. They might be making a million dollars through their gym, taking home 300 grand a year. So why would they want to come work for Gym Launch at, you know, $100,000 a year? Well, I realized that they wanted to learn from Alex and myself more than they wanted more money. Our value proposition to coaches was that you're going to learn directly from us. You're going to get access to everything that we know ahead of everybody else. And we're going to mentor you like you mentor your clients. The reason I think this stage is hard is that you have way less peers you can rely on. Every year that goes by, less and less businesses are able to continue to grow. You know, they might be stuck at a million or two million or three million or five million. What I found difficult was that I used to be able to find mentors who could help me with all aspects of the business. And what I realized very quickly that I had to segment and find mentors for each area of the business. People who had domain expertise rather than holistic business expertise. So I found people who were great at investing, found people who were great at finance, found people who were great at technology, found people who were in that domain great and then you know paid them for expertise, paid them for insight, hired them if I needed to, whatever, to figure out what we needed to do to professionalize those areas but I found that where a lot of people get stuck here and the reason it's hard for them is they're still listening to mentors who help them get to 10 million, but those people themselves aren't past 10 million. And so it's, it's really hard to get advice from somebody who's not been where you're at. Now, I will say there are professional people who are just very good coaches. Some of them in Silicon Valley, for example, like they haven't even been business owners, but they can coach people. But that's different. That's not the same as telling someone how to grow a business. Some of the best basketball coaches of all time haven't played on the court. So a lot of people ask, do I fundraise? You know, should I raise money to grow my business? I think it depends on what the end goal is. Would you prefer to own 100% of the business or would you prefer not to? Do you have the skills it takes to manage multiple stakeholders or do you not have those skills? I see that a lot of people who have started successful businesses before do well raising money because they understand the value of having other expertise there. So I think that you have to be self-aware enough to realize, is this something that I can take on on top of starting the business and weigh out the pros and cons for yourself? The final stage, 50 to 100, is all about innovation and talent. I mean innovation in a few different ways. Typically, a business can get to 50 million 
or even 100 million with a very simple product line and organically growing, more sales, more marketing, more CS, more of all these things, more infrastructure. But then a business gets to a point where it's at its hypothetical organic max. This vehicle in which we've built the business, it can't go past 80 miles per hour. So we might want to go to 120 miles per hour, but this car isn't going to get us there. And so the business often fundamentally has to change. This is where you see people sell to private equity. You know what private equity does? They add in technology so that the business becomes a technology business, which is automatically increases enterprise value and it creates additional products that you can sell that have more recurring revenue typically. Another thing that you do is you see vertical integration, which is we're selling supplements, but we don't own the supply chain. We could automatically go from 50 million to we could be worth 250 million if we buy all the supply chain. And this is where you see really a business become a business of businesses. The innovation occurs where you say, okay, we've taken this the best darn place we can organically. Now we have to figure out what does the business need to become to go past 100 million? What kind of business? Does it still remain a service business? Does it need to become a technology business? Are we keeping up with the market? What does the market want now? Is the way in which we're delivering the product and providing value still as effective as it was? Or could we innovate it and take more market share? And so the question is really, how do you do that? And how do you operationalize that? And a huge way that you do that is by, one, attracting higher level talent, having a true executive team that can run and not just run, grow the business without you and innovate it on your behalf. Bring new ideas to the table, bring different perspectives, bring experience from areas that you don't have. You know, if you need to turn the business into a technology business, what do you need to do? Find people who have built technology businesses. If you need to vertically integrate, what do you need to do? Find somebody who's vertically integrated. The business becomes a machine of its own and it's one that it requires more than one person to run. And often what happens is that innovation starts to die around 50 million because one person's brain can only fuel so much. You need more innovators and more thinkers on behalf of the business in order to get it to 100 million and beyond. That's why I think there's really two sides to this, which is how are we going to innovate the product or the business as a product? And what kind of talent do we need to allow for that innovation? Because it can't be the founder anymore. They can't do this all on their own. And you might not feel like this relates to you, but I actually would really encourage you to think like, what does my business need to look like three years from now? Say you're at 2 million right now or 3 million or 10 million. Like we're always talking to our founders about what's the vision three years from now? I'm not gonna say five, I'm not gonna say 10, but three. And then reverse engineering back. When do we need to start thinking about vertical integration? When do we need to start considering if we should become a technology platform or we should do a tech play? When do we need to start thinking about if we're gonna be a business that buys other businesses? We need to start preparing for those things years in advance. And so it would behoove you not to think about this stuff because what happens is that a lot of people take action up to 50 million that make it much harder for them to grow beyond 50 million. And if you're not at least informed and you're still unconsciously incompetent, then the amount of time it's going to take you to educate yourself on what needs to happen, the opportunity will be gone. And you won't have a chance to grow the business to 100 million and beyond because you've lost the opportunity because somebody else has taken it. So at the beginning, I said I was going to give you a few pieces of advice if you're interested in selling your business at some point. I would say the first thing is understand that your business is a product to a greater marketplace. The private equity or the venture capitalists or the family offices that would be interested in your business, understand what kind of buyer would want your business and for what reasons would they want it. Private equity, for example, oftentimes wants many businesses purely from a financial investment. They're trying to make returns on their money. Anything that puts that at risk is not something they're going to like versus a strategic buyer. So say you're a cookie business and you're small. You say, hey, that big cookie business might want to buy my small cookie business because I got a recipe that they might want. I would go to them when you're small and say, what would you want to see out of me to buy me when I'm a little bigger? And so that would be a strategic buyer. 
And a strategic buyer would most likely take the business, put it under their umbrella. You become one of their businesses and they would probably keep things a little bit more intact, but your brand would get immersed under their brand. In that scenario, they might pay you less than a private equity buyer. Why? Because they might plan to do more work on the business than private equity. On the other side, you might have someone like a family office buying it. And a family office might just be wanting a stable asset that can hold money, doesn't even need to get crazy returns. And so they might buy the business and say, just keep doing the damn thing. We don't want to touch a damn thing. We're just going to put our money in. My biggest piece of advice is to understand who would possibly buy your business in the future. Who would this be a product for? And then ask yourself, or even better, go find them and ask them, what would you want to see out of this business for it to be a viable business to buy? Now, I will say that there are some common traits that all of those investors might look for, right? The first one is that there's not key man risk. Most investors do not want to buy a business or invest in a business where one person makes majority of the decisions. They want to know they can remove the founder seamlessly and things will still run as is. The second is customer concentration risk, which is, do you have too much of your revenue coming from too few customers? Again, this is a huge risk for investors of any kind. And so if they see that there's only a few customers driving majority of the revenue, that's not appealing to them. And then the third piece is lack of consistent revenue. So that usually stems from lack of structure in place for a sales team, churn coming from not the best practices on the product side or maybe poor packaging, and lack of consistency with systems and team overall. 